You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 11th Saturday reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Diane Adler. Today we will be reading the following main articles. From the Daily Camera, State Republicans filibuster sought to stall gun reform. Safe drug use sites also on lawmakers' radar. Foreign relations, Iran, Saudi Arabia agreed to resume ties with China's help by John Gambrell. Wish Week, Fairview High celebrates local Make-A-Wish Child by Dana Cady. Hearing is set, Eerie Man accused of sexually assaulting four girls by Mitchell Byers. And following up with miscellaneous articles, from the Longmont Times Call, Pandemic, three years later, has the COVID-19 virus won by Carla K. Johnson. Northern Colorado Regional Airport, plane owners facing eviction by Dallas Heltzel. Longmont car theft crash, driver receives three-year sentence by Mitchell Byers. Inflation, Silicon Valley Bank is seized by U.S. after historic failure by Ken Sweet and following up with miscellaneous articles. State Republicans filibuster sought to stall gun reform by Seth Klamen, the Denver Post. More than 16 hours after they entered the House chamber, Colorado lawmakers advanced two controversial bills regulating guns and drug use in the early morning hours Friday, ending a marathon session of often emotional debate about how to best save lives amid dueling public health crises. House Republicans had pledged to fight the Democrat-backed bills, one of which would enact a minimum three-day waiting period for buying a gun, and the other would allow local governments to open safe-use drug sites. They made good on those threats Thursday. Debate on the gun measure began at 1.30 p.m. and ended at 2.30 the next morning. Republicans rejected a deal to end debate in exchange for a modest amendment as midnight approached, and Democrats shot down more than a dozen Republican attempts to change the gun bill. Ultimately, the waiting period bill passed with the slight change that Republicans had rejected hours before which will delay when the bill, should it be signed into law, becomes effective. The Safe Use Site Bill passed four hours after, at 6.30 a.m., also with modest changes. The debate fell on the midpoint of the 120-day session, and it hit upon two core issues for Republicans and Democrats alike. One is guns. Democrats, who hold firm majorities in both House and Senate, unveiled a suite of four firearm reform bills in late February. All four advanced through committee this week after lengthy hearings, and Democrats are now seeking to move them swiftly through the Capitol. The other three gun bills, to expand the state's red flag law, institute age limits on gun purchases, and to make it easier to sue gun manufacturers and sellers, were all to be heard before the full Senate on Friday. Republicans and their allies have vowed to filibuster and, acknowledging that the bills are still likely to pass, file lawsuits to block their implementation.
The second issue, whether to clear the way for safe use sites to open in willing municipalities, harkens back to last year's bruising fight over tightened criminal penalties and expanded harm reduction services for fentanyl users and dealers. The debate early Friday morning saw Democrats, like sponsor Representative Elizabeth Epps, cast the sites as a vital resource to keep drug users alive until they were ready to seek treatment. Republicans, meanwhile, derided the proposal, which would not open any sites itself, as enabling of illegal activity and an overreach into rural Colorado. Thursday's filibuster was reminiscent of last year's 24-hour standoff over the Reproductive Health Equity Act, which enshrined and protected abortion access in state law. Thursday's debate stretched so long that Democratic Majority Leader Monica Duran announced Friday morning that the House would break for the day, but returned Saturday, an atypical burst of weekend work for lawmakers that often depart the Capitol for their homes across Colorado every Friday. That's a particular wrinkle for Republicans. The state's party's central committee, which includes lawmakers who will now be compelled to return to the House, is set to meet Saturday and vote for their next party chair. A Democratic House spokesman said Friday morning that the move wasn't punitive and that the House had work it needed to get done. Democratic Representative Shannon Byrd echoed that sentiment and said that exhausted lawmakers couldn't work Friday and needed to make up time over the weekend. Going into the Thursday afternoon filibuster session, aides stocked up desks with snacks. Republican lawmakers stacked piles of research, amendments, and filibuster material against a wall, and a spokesman said some members had brought a change of clothes. The gun bill cast by supporters as an effort to curtail suicides by giving those in crisis a cooling-off period, ate up most of the day and evening. Representatives from both parties described personal experience with suicide. Representative Stephanie Vigil, a Colorado Springs Democrat, said she had attempted to kill herself and that the only reason she hadn't is because she had chosen a less lethal means and was able to stop. While Republicans had said the bill wouldn't solve the problem, Vigil countered that, saying one life would be enough. For Republicans, the filibuster was a statement to both those inside and outside the Capitol building of their commitment to fight what they see as infringements on the Second Amendment. Minority leader Mike Lynch said Democrats aren't focusing on the real issue, mental health, and were instead devoting weeks of attention to the bright, shiny, policy of gun reform. Their speeches, which often stretch for an hour at a time, range from criticisms of the bill's constitutionality and its impact on self-defense to the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt and the Rwandan genocide. Representative Ken DeGraff, a Colorado Springs Republican, warned that the distinction between a citizen and a slave is one is armed and one is not and his colleagues recounted stories of women who'd used guns to defend themselves from would-be attackers. As Republicans brought a spree of amendments that would allow domestic violence or sexual assault victims to circumvent the three-day waiting period, Penrose Republican Representative Stephanie Luck defended the need for the lengthy debate. It's not time-wasting, she said. This is our job. We have to figure out 
Is this policy workable? Luck had been one of the first Republicans to speak earlier that day, nearly eight hours before, when she expressed support for the gun bill sponsor, Representative Judy Amabile. The Boulder Democrat had described how her son had been in an acute mental health crisis and attempted to buy a gun. Only Amabile's intervention and the compassion of the gun shop owner had stopped the sale. While Republicans had said that guns are only one way for a person to die by suicide, Amabile said her son was still alive because he had used less lethal means in previous attempts. According to state data, 740 of the 1,370 suicides in Colorado in 2021 involved firearms. I don't expect any of you to care whether my son lives or dies, Amabile told her colleagues. That's not your job. But I do think it's our job here in the legislature to do everything we can to try to prevent preventable suicides. In response, Luck told her that though she disagreed with Amabile on this policy, she cared about her colleague's son. Epps, the sponsor of the Safe Use Site Bill with fellow Democratic Representative Jenny Wilford, cast her proposal in a similar preventative light as a tool to save lives amid a public health crisis. The bill, if passed, would let local governments decide whether to open the sites, which allow users to consume illicit substances under supervision in facilities that typically feature information about various treatment and support services. Republicans, meanwhile, argued that the sites will only encourage drug use while inviting crime into the neighborhoods in which a facility would open. Akron Republican Representative Richard Holtorf likened those with substance use disorders to chemical slaves, which prompted Wilford to read the dictionary definition of slave and ask for less divisive language. Foreign Relations Iran Saudi Arabia agreed to resume ties with China's help by John Gambrell, the Associated Press, Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed Friday to reestablish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies after seven years of tensions. The major diplomatic breakthrough negotiated with China lowers the chance of armed conflict between the Mideast rivals, both directly and in proxy conflicts around the region. The deal, struck in Beijing this week amid its ceremonial National People's Congress, represents a major diplomatic victory for the Chinese as Gulf Arab states perceive the United States as slowly withdrawing from the wider Middle East. It also comes as diplomats have been trying to end a long war in Yemen, a conflict in which both Iran and Saudi Arabia are deeply entrenched. The two countries released a joint communique on the deal with China, which brokered the agreement as President Xi Jinping was awarded a third five-year term as leader earlier Friday. Videos on Iranian state media showed Ali Shamkani, the Secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council, with Saudi National Security Advisor Musad bin Mohammed al-Aibin and Wang Yi, China's most senior diplomat. The joint statement calls for re-establishing ties and reopening embassies to happen within a maximum period of two months. A meeting by their foreign ministers is also planned. In the video, Wang can be heard offering wholehearted congratulations on the two countries' wisdom,
Both sides have displayed sincerity, he said. China fully supports this agreement. The United Nations welcomed the Saudi-Iranian rapprochement and thanked China for its role. Good neighborly relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia are essential for the stability of the Gulf region. UN spokesperson Stefan Dejarek said at UN headquarters, China, which last month hosted Iran's hardline president, Ebrahim Raisi, is also a top purchaser of Saudi oil. She visited Riyadh in December for meetings with oil-rich Gulf Arab nations crucial to China's energy supplies. Iran's state-run IRNA news agency quoted Shamkani as calling the talks clear, transparent, comprehensive, and constructive. Removing misunderstandings and the future-oriented views in relation between Tehran and Riyadh will definitely lead to improving regional stability and security, as well as increasing cooperation among Persian Gulf nations and the world of Islam for managing current challenges, Shankani said. Al-Aban thanked Iraq and Oman for mediating between Iran and the kingdom, according to his remarks carried by the state-run Saudi press agency. While we value what we have reached, we hope that we will continue to continue to constructive dialogue, the Saudi officials said. Tensions long have been high between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The kingdom broke ties with Iran in 2016 after protesters invaded Saudi diplomatic posts there. Saudi Arabia had executed a prominent Shiite cleric with 46 others days earlier, triggering the demonstrations. That came as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, then a deputy, began his rise to power. The son of King Salman, Prince Mohammed, previously compared Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei to Nazi Germany's Adolf Hitler and threatened to strike Iran. Since then, the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from Iran's nuclear deal with world powers in 2018. Iran has been blamed for a series of attacks after that, including one targeting the heart of Saudi Arabia's oil industry in 2019, temporarily halving the kingdom's crude production. Though Yemen's Iranian-backed Houthi rebels initially claimed the attack, Western nations and experts blamed Tehran. Iran denied it and also denied carrying out other assaults later attributed to the Islamic Republic. Religion also plays a key role in their relations. Saudi Arabia, home to the cube-shaped Kaaba that Muslims pray toward five times a day, has portrayed itself as the world's leading Sunni nation. Iran's theocracy, meanwhile, views itself as a protector of Islam's Shiite minority. The two powerhouses have competing interests elsewhere, such as in the turmoil in Lebanon and in the rebuilding of Iraq following the U.S.-led 2003 invasion that toppled Saddam Hussein. The leader of the Iranian-backed Lebanese militia and political group Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, said the agreement could open new horizons in Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen. Iraq, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates also praised the accord. Top Pakistani diplomat Bilawal Bhutto Zardari 
chair of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation's Council of Foreign Ministers, praised China for encouraging dispute resolution rather than on encouraging perpetual disputes. Christian Coates Erlikson, a research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute, who long has studied the region, said Saudi Arabia reaching the deal with Iran came after the United Arab Emirates reached a similar understanding with Tehran. This dialing down of tensions and de-escalation has been underway for three years, and this was triggered by Saudi acknowledgement in their view that without unconditional U.S. backing, they were unable to project power vis-a-vis Iran and the rest of the region, he said. Prince Mohammed, now focused on massive construction projects at home, likely wants to finally pull out of the Yemen war as well, Ulrichson said. Instability could do a lot of damage to his plans, he said. Wish Week, Fairview High celebrates local Make-A-Wish Child by Dana Cady, Prairie Mountain Media. In its 10th year of raising money for children with critical illnesses, Fairview High School in Boulder made four-year-old Clara DeMatteo the guest of honor at its Wish Week closing assembly on Friday. Claire, who lives in Louisville and was diagnosed with leukemia, too, will have her wish granted to travel to Disney World through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. During the course of this week, Fairview students met their goal of $15,000, enough to cover two wishes. In its decade supporting the nonprofit, the school has raised more than $77,000. We're so proud of our students for their leadership because this wouldn't be possible without them. And we're very grateful for the generosity of our community, said Principal Charlotte Chopin. We can't wait to do this again next year. Claire was welcomed into the packed Fairview High School gym Friday morning with roaring applause. Escorted by three students dressed as Disney princesses, she was entertained with volleyball and soccer games, as well as performances by the school's combined jazz choir, Winter Guard, and Palms dance team. Claire even got in on the action for a drawing competition against the other students, which she won. She really loved it, said Claire's mom, Shelby DeMatteo, who came to the ceremony alongside Claire's dad and little brother. She'll be talking about this for a while. The Fairview High School Student Council organized Friday's assembly and led the fundraising effort for Wish Week. Volunteers sold donuts, bagels, and drinks at the school to raise the money, all of which goes to Make-A-Wish Colorado. Student Council representatives said they decided to set a higher goal for 2023 after surpassing last year's by several thousand dollars. I think it went great, said Student Council member Megan Amasa. This is one of our first assemblies where we had a lot of performances because the students at Fairview are just so talented. Claire finished her two and a half years of treatment in August and is now in remission. Shelby DiMatteo said Claire's condition needs to be closely monitored for another five years, but believes the hardest part is behind her. We've had a lot of support through the journey, and it's always meaningful, she said. It helps us try to replace some of the hard memories with some of these joyous ones. Hearing is set. Eerie man accused of sexually assaulting four girls by Mitchell Byers, Prairie Mountain Media. An eerie man has been arrested after police said he sexually assaulted four girls at his home. 
Justin Whitaker, 48, is charged with four counts of sexual assault on a child by one in a position of trust. According to a release from the Boulder County District Attorney's Office, police believe that between 2009 and 2017, Whitaker had sexual contact with several children while they were visiting his home on Weston Drive in Erie. According to an affidavit, Whitaker did know the children. At least one named victim in the affidavit was as young as seven years old when the assault occurred. Whitaker declined to speak to police regarding the allegations. Erie police first became aware of the allegations when they were reported by someone to a school resource officer. Prosecutors in the release did say they were concerned there were more victims. We encouraged victims to come forward, Boulder County District Attorney Michael Doherty said in a statement. Our dedicated sex crimes unit prosecutors and victim advocates are available to assist and support victims. Anyone with information on this case is asked to contact Erie Police Detective Shannon Crow at 303-926-2827 or scrow at erieco.gov. Whitaker was released on a $100,000 bond and is set for a preliminary hearing on March 23rd. Around the county, Boulder County, Indian Peaks Wilderness Permits Available Thursday. Permits for the rugged Indian Peaks Wilderness Area became available at 8 a.m. Thursday on recreation.gov. People may visit https fs.usda.gov forward slash r-e-c-a-r-e-a forward slash a-r-p forward slash A-R-E-A forward slash question mark. R-E-C-I-D equals 80803 to plan their trips in advance. Overnight parking reservations for visitors planning to use the Brainerd Lake Recreation Area trailheads for permitted overnight camping in Indian Peaks Wilderness Area will be available starting Thursday on recreation.gov. Those planning to use the popular HESI or 4th of July trail hoods should check bouldercounty.gov forward slash open dash space forward slash parks dash and dash trails forward slash HESI dash trailhead slash for information on shuttles and parking. Information on that page will be updated before the season begins. Boulder Valley. BVSD seeks members for Bond Oversight Committee. The Boulder Valley School District is looking for community members to join its Community Bond Oversight Committee to provide monitoring and review of projects for its $350 million capital construction bond issue. Membership includes parents, teachers, principals, representatives from all district communities, and former Capital Improvement Plan Review Committee members. Professional experience in fields related to capital construction, such as architecture, engineering, business, construction, and accounting financial management, is a plus. Members serve two- and three-year terms. Applications are due Friday. The committee will meet quarterly initially. Upcoming meeting dates are Wednesdays, May 17th, September 20th, and December 13th. 
meetings are held from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. in person at the Education Center, 6500 East Arapahoe Road, Boulder. To learn more or apply, go to bond.bvsd.org forward slash citizens-bond-oversight-committee. Louisville. Penn offers sessions on stress and anxiety. The Parent Engagement Network, or Penn, is offering two parent education sessions next week, one of mental health nutrition and one on communication and connection. A talk on Supplements and Nutrition for Mental Health by Stephanie Smalls is set at 6 p.m. Wednesday. The talk is offered both virtually and in person at Fusion Academy, 168 Centennial Parkway, Louisville. A virtual talk on How to Be a Lighthouse in the Storm by Karen Along is at noon Thursday. The sessions are part of the organization's Reducing Stress and Anxiety series, Rebuild and Reconnect. For information on the full series and to register for a session, go to parentengagementnetwork.org forward slash 2023 forward slash 01 forward slash 31 forward slash pens dash 2023 dash reducing dash stress dash anxiety dash series forward slash. Spanish interpretation is available for all sessions, which are free of charge with an option for donations. This was from Staff Reports. State Politics. Bobert announces she'll be a 36-year-old grandmother. Her 17-year-old son's partner is expecting. By Bruce Finley, the Denver Post. Representative Lauren Bobert, a Republican of Colorado, has announced she will be a grandmother at 36 next month when her 17-year-old son's partner gives birth to a son. Bobert revealed this family news at a woman's breakfast during the Conservative Political Action Conference in Maryland that ended last weekend where she received a Mothers of Influence Award. Bobert addressed women and men at the breakfast after accepting the award. I'm going to tell you all for the first time in a public setting that not only am I a mother of four boys, but come April, I will be a Gigi to a brand new grandson, she said. Bobert's son, when she talked with him about becoming a grandmother, pointed out that Bobert made her own mother a grandmother at 36, and he suggested it was hereditary, Bobert told those at the breakfast. She then praised the values of rural conservative communities, where teen pregnancy rates tend to be higher, she said, because we value the preciousness of life. Bobert has challenged abortion laws and told conference participants that she and her husband were concerned about whether her son and his partner would choose life, and they did, and we are so proud of them for making that sacrifice and being selfless in that position. Bobert staffers on Friday confirmed the announcement. Breaking from a meeting for an interview, Bobert verified her son and his girlfriend are not married and declined to reveal the age of the girlfriend, other than to say she's over 14. Colorado's age of consent is 17, with exceptions allowing unmarried consensual sex when partners are within four years of the same age. Bobert said she and her husband, Jason, plan to do all they can to support the young parents. It's something Jason and I did not have, family that could step in and help us. We want them to have everything possible for the baby and for themselves. Her son soon will graduate from high school, she said, 
and works at a retail tire store. I am just very proud of both of them for being responsible for their situation. This is a huge responsibility they are taking on. They made the right choice. Nothing was forced on them. This is a decision they made on their own, Bobert said, adding that she doesn't intend to change her political position opposing sex education in schools, as critics have urged her to do. Turning to the Longmont Times call, pandemic, three years later, has the COVID-19 virus won by Carla K. Johnson, the Associated Press. On the third anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic, the virus is still spreading and the death toll is nearly 7 million worldwide. Yet most people have resumed their normal lives, thanks to a wall of immunity built from infections and vaccines. The virus appears here to stay, along with the threat of a more dangerous version sweeping the planet. New variants emerging anywhere threaten us everywhere, said virus researcher Thomas Friedrich of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Maybe that will help people to understand how connected we are. With information sources drying up, it has become harder to keep tabs on the pandemic. Johns Hopkins University on Friday shut down its trusted tracker, which had started soon after the virus emerged in China and spread worldwide. Saturday marks three years since the World Health Organization first called the outbreak a pandemic on March 11, 2020, and the United Nations Health Organization says it's not yet ready to say the emergency has ended. A look at where we stand. The virus endures. With the pandemic still killing 900 to 1,000 people a day worldwide, the stealthy virus behind COVID-19 hasn't lost its punch. It spreads easily from person to person, riding respiratory droplets in the air, killing some victims but leaving most to bounce back without much harm. Whatever the virus is doing today, it's still working on finding another winning path, said Dr. Eric Topol, head of Scripps Research Translational Institute in California. We've become numb to the daily death toll, Topol says, but we should view it as too high. Consider that in the United States, daily hospitalizations and deaths, while lower than at the worst peaks, have not yet dropped to the low levels reached during the summer 2021 before the Delta variant wave. At any moment, the virus could change to become more transmissible, more able to sidestep the immune system, or more deadly. Topol said we're not ready for that. Trust has eroded in public health agencies, furthering an exodus of public health workers. Resistance to stay-at-home orders and vaccine mandates may be the pandemic's legacy. I wish we united against the enemy, the virus, instead of against each other, Topol said. Fighting back, there's another way to look at it. Humans unlock the virus's genetic code and rapidly develop vaccines that work remarkably well. We built mathematical models to get ready for worst-case scenarios, We continue to monitor how the virus is changing by looking for it in wastewater. The pandemic really catalyzed some amazing science, said Friedrich. The achievements add up to a new normal where COVID-19 doesn't need to be at the forefront of people's minds, said Natalie Dean, an assistant professor of biostatistics at Emory University. That, at least, is a victory. 
Dr. Stuart Campbell-Ray, an infectious disease expert at Johns Hopkins, said the current Omicron variants have about 100 genetic differences from the original coronavirus strain. That means about 1% of the virus's genome is different from its starting point. Many of those changes have made it more contagious, but the worst is likely over because of population immunity. Matthew Binnaker, an expert in viral infections at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, said the world is in a very different situation today than we were three years ago, where there was, in essence, zero existing immunity to the original virus. That extreme vulnerability forced measures aimed at flattening the curve. Businesses and schools closed. Weddings and funerals were postponed. Masks and social distancing later gave way to showing proof of vaccination. Now, such precautions are rare. We're not likely to go back to where we were because there's so much of the virus that our immune systems can recognize, Ray said. Our immunity should protect us from the worst of what we saw before. Real-time data lacking. On Friday, Johns Hopkins did its final update to its free coronavirus dashboard and hotspot map, with the death count standing at more than 6.8 million worldwide. Its government sources for real-time tallies had drastically declined. In the U.S., only New York, Arkansas, and Puerto Rico still publish case and death counts daily. We rely so heavily on public data, and it's just not there, said Beth Blauer, data lead for the project. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention still collects a variety of information from states, hospitals, and testing labs, including cases, hospitalizations, deaths, and what strains of the coronavirus are being detected. But for many counts, there's less data available now, and it's been less timely. People have expected to receive data from us that we will no longer be able to produce, said the CDC's director, Dr. Rochelle Wilensky. Internationally, the WHO's tracking of COVID-19 relies on individual countries reporting. Global health officials have been voicing concern that their numbers severely underestimate what's actually happening, and they do not have a true picture of the outbreak. For more than a year, CDC has been moving away from case counts and testing results, partly because of the rise in home tests that aren't reported. The agency focuses on hospitalizations, which are still reported daily, although that may change. Death reporting continues, though it has become less reliant on daily reports and more on death certificates, which can take days or weeks to come in. U.S. officials say they are adjusting to the circumstances and trying to move to a tracking system, somewhat akin to how CDC monitors the flu. Then and now. I wish we could go back to before COVID, said Kelly Forrester, 52, of Shakopee, Minnesota, who lost her father to the disease in May 2020, survived her own bout in December, and blames misinformation for ruining a longtime friendship. I hate it. I actually hate it. The disease feels random to her. You don't know who will survive, who will have long COVID or a mild cold, and then other people. They'll end up in the hospital dying. Forrester's father, 80-year-old Virgil Mitchlich, a retired meatpacker, delivery man, and elementary school custodian, died in a nursing home with his wife, daughters, and granddaughters keeping vigil outside the building in lawn chairs. 
Not being at his bedside was the hardest thing, Forrester said. Inspired by the pandemic's toll, her 24-year-old daughter is now getting a master's in public health. My dad would have been really proud of her, Forrester said. I'm so glad that she believed in it, that she wanted to do that and make things better for people. Northern Colorado Regional Airport, Plane Owners Facing Eviction by Dallas Heltzel, BizWest and the Times Call. The Governing Commission of Northern Colorado Regional Airport may hear some proposals next week for ways to give owners of general aviation aircraft more time to find ways to keep their planes sheltered instead of being evicted this spring and summer. Richard Rick Turley, acting simply as a self-described annoyed hangar resident and not as a member of the FNL Pilots Association, told a crowded town hall meeting Thursday at the airport's Jet Center hangar that he wanted to present alternative ideas to the commission at its next meeting. That panel, at a special meeting March 2nd that was called with three days' notice, cited safety and liability concerns in ruling that four airport-owned hangars would be decommissioned, displacing 47 aircraft. My desire is to buy time, Turley said. How can we remain with aircraft in these hangars beyond the stated eviction date and get approval to stay in them while we move the process forward? What I would like to do is go in next Thursday with an outline of a proposal and see if we can garner support, Turley told the audience, which he estimated from the show of hands was made up of about 85% of people who shelter planes in hangars on the airport's grounds. Turley said his goal was threefold. How do we mitigate the risk to safety and liability, which we've all been told? Develop a transition plan to somehow get from those hangers to something in the future and find long-term solutions. How do we get viable T-hanger space built in a timely manner on this airport? Airport Director Jason Licone had opened the meeting with his explanation of why the decision was made, but was pelted with sometimes angry comments from the owners, prompting Turley to thank Lincoln for doing this without a flak suit. Like many in the audience, Turley said, I was very frustrated by this. I did not see it coming. However, he said, he's compiling a list of affected pilots' emails and wants to turn it into something positive. The commission said they were open to input and proposals from affected pilots so long as we address the safety and liability concerns that had been raised in the previous engineering report, Turley said. What they also said was that we could bring forth proposals at upcoming commission meetings. The commission's next regular meetings are March 16th and April 20th, both scheduled before the May 10 and July 11 deadlines the owners had been given to move their planes out of the four condemned structures. Turley said he asked commission members, Am I wasting my time and energy here? Is this a foregone conclusion, or are you open to proposals? The answer I seemed to be getting was yes, it's open. They really do want to solve this problem. They are frustrated as well that, based on the risk management departments of both cities, Loveland and Fort Collins, the joint owners of the airport, they've been advised to not allow those hangars to continue to be used. The airport offered the displaced pilots outdoor tie-downs for their planes, but most of the owners found that option unacceptable because of the potential damaging effects on their craft from sun, wind, and hail. I've had a plane parked in these hangars since 2011, Turley said. 
It's a Cessna 182, built in 1976, but it flies great. But it will weather quickly if I have to leave it outdoors. I need another option than keeping the plane outdoors. The cone opened the meeting by noting that the airport master plan drafted in 2007 and updated in 2009 had indicated that the area including the four condemned hangars would be targeted for redevelopment. According to a page on the airport's website that is devoted to explaining the hangar issue, in 2021, an unsolicited proposal was received from the airport's fixed base operator, FBO, Jet Centers of Colorado, to develop the hangar area. This proposal was provided knowing that the area was targeted for redevelopment and that the cities now own all of the hangar units. Upon review by the airport commission, it was determined that the area needed to go through a formal advertised request for proposals RFP process from interested parties. The RFP was advertised in late 2021 and generated three responses. An evaluation committee reviewed the proposals, collected additional information, engaged in negotiations, and made recommendations to the airport commission. Ultimately, the airport commission voted to close the RFP without award. The Jet Center bid created similar pushback in summer 2021 because it would have displaced dozens of private aircraft owners. The lease agreement with Fort Collins Loveland Jet Center would have raised three T hangars that house about 60 private planes and permitted Jet Center to build jet hangars and jet services on that land. The owners complained about the lack of notice of the lease agreement, that their interests were not taken into consideration since private hangar space is in short supply along the front range, and they asked why the Jet Center proposal, an unsolicited bid, wasn't opened up to competitive bids. The airport then commissioned Fort Collins based Detesco Project and Construction Services to identify the useful lifespan of these hangars for planning purposes, Lacone said. Unfortunately, to our surprise, the conclusion of those analyses were that the structures were observed to have significant issues to the point where we thought a couple of these buildings had this amount of structural failure, but not all of them. And as part of the investigation, it was identified that all of the hangars had certain defects that would not be able to be retrofitted to adhere to current building standards or codes or be able to meet the service life extension that we were seeking to create. Owners wondered why an emergency meeting was called, complete with an executive session, when the engineer's report was dated September 20th. Lacone responded that after hearing from Loveland's and Fort Collins risk management and legal departments, we did further investigation and a report came back in February. A February 5th letter from engineer Jill Burrell at Detesco identified concrete structural foundation failure, column to foundation anchorage failure, untreatable subgrade, missing or damaged hardware, misplaced structural column load bearing, deformed structural members, and failed tension rod connections. With the structural conditions witnessed during the initial field inspection, Burrell wrote, it is highly anticipated that similar conditions exist throughout the remaining structure. She termed the four hangers not salvageable and not a candidate for retrofit. 
The ruling to decommission the hangars was made, LeCon said after discussing the addendum with the city's risk management and legal teams. Pilots at the meeting charged that safety wasn't part of the engineer's report, but in a March 7th letter from DeTesco, five days after the closure was announced, engineer Keith Meyer wrote that, while we noted occupancy risk in our report, we were not contracted to, nor did we perform, failure analysis of those structures. Throughout the process, our staff have been asked if the hangars are safe. As practicing professional engineers, our greatest obligation is to hold paramount the safety, health, and welfare of the public. We feel continued use of the hangars presents risk to the occupants and FNL. A second opinion, Meyer wrote, is outside of our contracted scope of work. Turley advocated that second opinion. The engineering report that was created was not intended to determine whether or not these hangars are safe and wasn't intended to address liability issues, he said. One of the first steps is getting an engineering report that's more thorough that wasn't just a spot check. We have a different set of objectives for the second opinion than the set of objectives the engineering team was given in the first place. We need to look at liability. How is it that we can absolve the cities of what they perceive to be the liability they have with the airport? One way, Turley said, would be forming a hangar association that maintains the insurance on the structures and maintains liability for the structures and to a certain extent absolves the cities of that liability. Addressing possible next steps, Lecon said, obviously part of that would be to begin work on trying to develop a new hangar site. That's not going to do any good for anybody that's going to be displaced right now. We understand that. That's the unfortunate circumstance that we're in given the structural analysis and the city's need to move people out for the concerns that we've identified. We do want to do whatever we can to make this as soft a landing as possible for everyone who's being impacted, he said. The four targeted hangars were built between 1965 and 1977 and contained 57 usable hangar units with 64,500 square feet of storage space and are leased on a month-to-month basis to owners of small aircraft. Lacone said, The cities have always relied on the private sector to build tea hangars, but Martin Lind, who heads Water Valley Land Company, had negotiated to bring a U.S. Customs facility to NFL and owns Discovery Air Center at the airport, responded that we proposed 120 new hangars, which was rejected, and we never even got an answer back. There's something wrong at this airport, and it's up to you guys to find it. This is wrong, Jason. Lynn said proposals from him, Jet Center, and a pilot's group were the three responses the airport commission got to its 2021 request for proposals. I'm super unhappy about this because you guys deserve to stay here, Lynn told the assembled aircraft owners. You guys deserve a fighting chance to keep your airplanes indoors, and you deserve a lot longer notice of this. Lind released a 20-minute video in which he detailed his experience, including what he received when he filed a Colorado Open Records Act request to see what the other two proposals contained so that he could use that information to modify his own application. He displayed the reports he got back, but they included multiple pages that were solid black with redactions. I want an unredacted look at those reports, he told Lincoln. In a conversation after the town hall, 
the comb pleated with wind. Let's reboot and find a solution. That solution is a necessity for the owners, Turley said, because at the moment, if we do nothing, we're all out. This article was first published by BizWest, an independent news organization, and is published under a license agreement. Longmont car theft crash. Driver receives three-year prison sentence by Mitchell Byers, Prairie Mountain Media. The driver accused of causing a crash on U.S. 287 north of Longmont while driving a stolen truck was sentenced to three years in prison. Mitchell Alberto Verdugo Felix, 35, pleaded guilty in December to vehicular assault, vehicular eluding, and two counts of aggravated motor vehicle theft. On Friday, Boulder District Judge Patrick Butler sentenced Verdugo Felix to three years in the Colorado Department of Corrections on the assault and eluding counts and one year on the theft count. He will serve all three sentences concurrently for a total of three years in prison. Because of prior felony convictions, Verdugo Felix was not eligible for probation. And while his defense attorney asked for a community correction sentence, Butler said a prison sentence was warranted given Verdugo Felix's criminal history and lack of compliance with previous probation sentences. Mr. Verdugo has had many more than a second chance, Butler said. He has had a fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth and tenth chances. And regrettably, what he has shown is that he is not capable of being supervised in the community safely. Attorneys noted Verdugo Felix still has open cases in Weld County in addition to a lengthy criminal history. His criminal history started in 2004 and has been consistently ongoing since that time, Butler said. Verdugo Felix addressed the court prior to the sentence being issued. I would like to apologize to my victims and their families and the community who I affected by my behavior, he said. My actions have caused you a tremendous amount of damage, stress, trauma, and financial hardship. For this, I am sitting here today accepting the consequences for what I did. I am remorseful for what I did, and I pray with time that your damage will be healed. According to an affidavit, Longmont police were called to 965 South Hover Street on July 19th after Mansett's Dodge pickup truck was stolen while he was inside a business. An officer in an unmarked vehicle spotted the stolen truck and began following it, while another officer moved in to try to intercept the truck at the intersection of Vermilion Road and US-287. But the driver of the stolen truck, later identified as Verdugo Felix, spotted the officer's vehicle and ran a stop sign trying to cross US-287 when he was hit by a Ford pickup truck heading south. Police said Verdugo Felix got out of the stolen truck and tried to get into another vehicle before officers took him into custody. Colorado State Patrol officers said multiple people inside the Ford were taken to the hospital with injuries ranging from serious to minor. Several of the victims spoke at the hearing remotely through an interpreter, talking about the lasting impacts the crash had on their lives. Verdugo Felix said he would put his efforts into becoming a productive member of the community. To my community, I apologize for my lack of of respect by my actions, he said. I will take my consequences as a learning experience. Butler noted that because Verdugo Felix will get credit for 235 days of time already served, he will quickly become parole eligible and will very likely be back in the community before the three-year sentence was fully served. I hope you are taking all the things you have learned and all the things you have said seriously because you will be back out in the community fairly shortly, Butler said. In a Longmont Times call obituary, Frederick Fred R. Peer, September 22, 1953 to February 24, 2023. 
Frederick Fred R. Pier, 69, of Elk Grove, California, passed away peacefully on February 24, 2023, after a lifetime of doing what he loved most. Born in California, he spent his high school and college years surfing and backpacking. Fred was a voracious learner, with his favorite topics being history, religion, politics, and philosophy. He was an avid fan of music and often could be found rocking out to songs old and new. He made the best bread and pizza and enjoyed making jewelry and riding his vintage BMW motorcycle. He is survived by his daughters, Kirsten, Dave, and Kelly Lewis, and his grandson, Carson. A private service will be held on March 30th, 2023. In lieu of flowers, please send donations to the Humane Society of Boulder Valley. Inflation. Silicon Valley Bank is seized by U.S. after historic failure by Ken Sweet, the Associated Press, New York. The U.S. rushed to seize the assets of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday after it experienced a run on the bank, the largest failure of a financial institution since Washington Mutual during the height of the financial crisis more than a decade ago. Silicon Valley, the nation's 16th largest bank, failed after depositors, mostly technology workers and venture capital-backed companies, hurried to withdraw money this week as anxiety over the bank's balance sheet spread. It is the second biggest bank failure in history behind Washington Mutual. Silicon Valley was heavily exposed to tech industry, and there is little chance of contagion in the banking sector, similar to the chaos in the months leading up to the Great Recession more than a decade ago. The biggest banks, those most likely to cause a systemic economic issue, have healthy balance sheets and plenty of capital. In 2007, the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression rippled across the globe after mortgage-backed securities tied to ill-advised housing loans rippled from the U.S. to Asia and Europe. The panic on Wall Street led to the collapse of the storied Lehman Brothers, founded in 1847. Because major banks had extensive exposure to one another, it led to cascading disruption throughout the global financial system, putting millions out of work. However, there has been unease in the banking sector all week, and the collapse of Silicon Valley pushed shares of almost all financial institutions lower Friday, shares that had already tumbled by double digits since Monday. Silicon Valley Bank's failure arrived with incredible speed, with some industry analysts on Friday suggesting it was a good company and still likely a wise investment. Silicon Valley Bank executives were trying to raise capital early Friday and find additional investors. However, trading in the bank's shares was halted before the opening bell due to extreme volatility. Shortly before noon Eastern, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation moved to shutter the bank. Notably, the FDIC did not wait until the close of business to seize the bank, as is typical in an orderly wind-down of a financial institution. The FDIC could not immediately find a buyer for the bank's assets, signaling how fast depositors had cash out. The bank's remaining uninsured deposits will now be locked up in receivership. The bank had $209 billion in total assets at the time of the failure, the FDIC said. It was unclear how much of its deposits were above the $250,000 insurance limit at the moment, but previous regulatory reports showed that much of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits exceeded that limit. The FDIC said Friday that deposits below the $250,000 limit would be available Monday morning. 
Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. Don't forget, daylight saving time ends at 2 a.m. Sunday, so set your clocks ahead one hour. My name is Diane Adler. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.